You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. At university, uh, as I stayed up in Belfast, uh, there was one of the, the, the girls that we lived with, and she was really quite unwell, and she started taking many, many seizures. And that involved m- many trips to a hospital, as maybe we called for an ambulance and went with her and then brought her back again. And then it was really quite regular. And then there was another day where I was maybe, I was normally, I'm the, I was in the David Kerbal and I was 10 minutes from where we lived, less than that. And so people would, would call me if it, it happened. And it happened on another occasion. And another girl who we are very good friends with, uh, she was there that day and she was training to be a nurse. And well, she, she called me and I, I went up and, we helped her, the ambulance came, and she said to me, David, do you want me to go this time? I was like, yeah, sure, no problem at all. And well, she went off to A&E, and she was there for hours, and hours, and hours. And well, that, that friend that went with the girl who was sick, it, that her mum arrived and just took over. And our friend was standing there like, Okay, I've been here seven hours. I'll just go. And she came back, and she just couldn't believe it. It's like, David, I was there for hours, and there wasn't a thank you. There wasn't a thank you for all that I've done. And I said, I know. And while we don't do things in life to get thanks, or we shouldn't, I learned that one a long time ago. And in Luke 17, we missed that chapter out in going through Luke, but there we have recorded for us the story of the ten lepers. Do you remember that story? They're calling out to Jesus in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus tells them, go to the priests and you'll be cleansed. And what happens? They go to the priests. They all experience God's grace because they're all cleansed. And what happens next? One comes back and says to Jesus, thank you. All the nine others were unresponsive to God's grace. What else could Jesus have done for these men? And the fact that one, the one person who did thank Jesus was Samaritan, not the others, the foreigner responded to God's grace. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 5, this is what's happening. People who are being unresponsive to God's grace. People who are being unresponsive to God's grace. Receiving God's grace in vain, if you like. They had experienced the divine Israel being taken out of Egypt and had that salvation, and they were just neglecting God. They had experienced God's grace generation upon generation upon generation, but they were ignoring God. They were totally unresponsive to Him. They wanted God's acceptance without being transformed. And we can do that too, can't we? We can be, in a sense, unresponsive to God's grace to us. We know that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, but we don't want to change. We don't want to be responsive to God's grace. We can resist God's grace in different ways, and we'll come to those later. But first thing that we learn, we see here in this passage, in verses 1 to 7, is God's prepared vineyard, okay? So God's prepared vineyard. And this is wonderfully written because it begins in those first two verses as if it's going to be a love song or a love poetry, doesn't it? It starts off so winsomely. I will sing for the one I love. It sounds like it's going to be so, so beautiful. Look at all that I've done. My loved one is a a vineyard on a fertile hill. I've done so, so much for this. 
In the last line of verse 2, but it yielded only pad fruit. In verses 1 and 2, where you see God's such great care and detail, uh, detail of concern that he's planted the, the choicest vines, not any old kind of vine, but the very best of the best. It's like getting the right bull or the stud if you're farming. God gets the very best vine and he plants it. But in verse 2 and 3, it utterly changes tone. And God asks a question, doesn't he? Uh, what more, in verse 4, what more can I have done for my vineyard for, than I have done for it? God's saying, look at all that I have done in my vineyard. I have done so, so much. And the people listening to this are, are supposed to be saying, oh yes, God, you've done so, so much, so surely there will be good fruit. But no. It's like a parable, isn't it? It's a wee bit like, you know, David and Bathsheba. After that fiasco, Nathan the prophet shares a parable and David condemns himself. Here, I think that's the idea going on. We have this lovely love song, but there's bad fruit. The idea being that the people are supposed to be condemning themselves in their minds. The vineyard is to produce fruit, to produce good grapes. And while this picture of the vineyard is Israel, but what does the Lord see? Not a good crop, but actually sour grapes in verse 2. It yielded only bad fruit. So that can be translated in different ways, wild grapes. But the Hebrew word, Hebrew language is so picturesque, is the only way to describe it. So this word is like a, a stinking berry, or what I prefer, a poison berry. Not a great picture. God has planted this vineyard, but the people are producing poison berries. It's no good. It's deadly, actually. And it reflects the state of them and their sin. But why does it only be, yield bad fruit? Why does it all go so wrong? Because look what the God has done for them. He's cleared it of stones. He's built a watchtower. There would be round-the-clock care, round-the-year care for God's people Israel. And with all those privileges, all those blessings of grace, it's only poison berries produced. God has chosen Israel to be his people. He entered covenant into them, but they have been so ungrateful to the point where it appears the nation itself is not entirely but quite closely, totally pagan. I remember as we read Isaiah, it's about the nation. So what does that mean for us? It's about God's people. It's about the church. As the church here in Union Road and La Comfort, what more can God do for us? He has sent us Jesus. He has secured salvation for his people in Jesus. He received judgment that ought to be ours. But where or what? is the fruit of our faith. You see, not only do we have these wonderful passages like Romans 8 that we study in June that remind us what God is doing, but what are we doing? We can have so much grace, but that we're not responsive to it. We have these incredible riches of Romans 8 and the whole world around us. We have Bibles, app, podcasts, internet, Bible study materials, church buildings, new halls in the comfort. We have so, so, so much Blessing upon blessing, but what is the result? Is there growth? Is there fruit? Is there poison berries in us? We must take full advantage of what God has given to us, or we will lose it. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now I tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. I'm going to leave it exposed. I'm going to allow the animals to ravage it. Why? Because they weren't responsive to God's grace. Individuals do not make up a church. We are the church together. We understand that. But each of us, 
We need to look at ourselves and our sin. How can a body work properly if a whole leg's infected? Or a whole leg's broke? It doesn't function properly. Sure, it doesn't. And we need to deal with our sin because sin restricts growth. Sin restricts growth. When we are unfruitful in response to God's grace, we become fruitful with poison berries. When we are unfruitful in response to God's grace, we don't produce good fruit. But how much fruit can be seen in our individual lives and even in the life of a church? Well, that is to be seen, and we are to be. Although we might produce poison berries, but we are to be sweet grapes. The Christian life is about fruitfulness. God wants us to be holy people, his people walking with him, and for each of us to be changed by the Holy Spirit's transforming power. And this is an urgent priority for us, to be sweet grapes. So in John's gospel, in John 15, Jesus again is picking up this, uh, the vine and the branches. You know, Jesus says, I am the true vine. In verse 8, Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you would bear much fruit. And then in the verse 16, Jesus said that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, bear fruit that will last. What does God want from his people? What does God want from us? To reject sin, to reject the sour grapes and be sweet. To have sweet grapes, to be fruitful. In verse 7, we're told what the Lord's looking for. He's looking for justice. Sees bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and he doesn't see it either. God's prepared vineyard was oh so good. He had lavished grace upon grace on it. It was the perfect environment to grow. Yet the people rejected him. As a church, let us, we have been blessed with so much, so, so many resources. Let us not neglect those. Let us not produce poison berries. Secondly, verses 8 really to 30. Now, the, the prophet emphasizes this really bad news. So it's just, getting, it's just a, a cycle here of bad news. And while God pronounces judgment next, okay? God pronounces judgment and what are these sour grapes that Israel produced? What are these poison berries? Well, what they produce in of themselves, and we thought about this last week, as the people wander away from God, as they reject him, the consequences of their actions in disobedience means that they are actually going to be actually judged. There are judgments from God as well. So if they aren't just, well, the, the consequence of that is that God will continue to punish them. So as we look at these next set of verses, we have six woes, okay? Six woes, six poison berries, if you like. And let's see, do any of these ring any bells in today's world? And maybe even in our hearts as well. These are ways too in which we can stumble and fall, not allowing God's Spirit to work in us, not allowing ourselves to be transformed. So look at these six bunches, if you like, of poison berries. So the first woe, you see it there in verse 8. Woe to you, Hahaz, adds house to house, joins field to field till you have no spaces left and you live alone in the land. What is that? It's ambition. People are just adding and adding and adding and adding and adding to what they have. They are greedy. And God is looking at Israel. I remember we were saying that the rich are getting richer. Here the rich are just adding and adding and adding to their wealth, desiring more and more property and land. 
What does God tell Israel to live like? As aliens and strangers and sojourners, earth is just a temporary dwelling. God's saying, you've got it wrong. You've got it all muddled up. It's not about what you have here. It's about what you have in me. They're building their own little kingdoms rather than remembering the poor, rather than remembering God's promise of that eternal heavenly home. Isaiah pronounces woe upon woe here. And it's really this faithless, wealthy elite that we thought about last week are using every trick in the book. You know, they're putting up rent to make people get people out of the property. They're making the, the, the poor uh, and those who are weak really vulnerable, and they're just taking property off them. They're moving, you know, the boundary markers. You know, they're moving their, their fields just a little bit every day just to get more. We're, others, we're told even in First Kings, that they killed for land, like, like Jezebel killed Naboth. However it was done, the theft of land or corruption, whatever way it was, they were ambitious. And this was poison berries to them. And isn't our world full of ambition for themselves? Full of ambition, trying to get more and more and more, more and more power, more and more money, more and more something. I don't know. They're ambitious beyond belief. But are we like that? Are we ambitious to maybe get a position in our workplace? Are we ambitious maybe to... to, to to be a, a leader in a certain organization or to be an elder? Or are we ambitious for those things? Because God says you've got it all wrong. Do not be ambitious for yourself. Be ambitious for my glory. Second rule then, do you see it in verse 11? Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after the drinks. It's drunks, it's drunkenness, it's partying. Here in, in, in Jerusalem, men and women were living for pleasure and they were living for, for escapism. That's something we might get or recognize ourselves. Sometimes we want just to escape from it all. But should we? Should we try and escape from this world? Or do we live in the world so we'd be salt and light in it? Here in this, these verses 11 to 17, there's clearly no consideration from these people that, uh, that God is for them. So at the end of verse 12, that they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. They have no respect for the work of his hands. They simply eat, drink, and be merry. But that's not what God has created us for. Isaiah condemns those who are enslaved to this. He doesn't forbid entertainment, no. But he, can, he condemns those who make amusement, entertainment, their God. Isn't that sobering for us? I live for the weekend. I live for my football. I live for my music. I live for my hockey. What is that? Is that not making amusement or entertainment a God? Let us be, let us be wary of that entertainment-driven society that we live in. Not, to, not that we would be drunken in drunkenness and partying, but we can use that, things like that to escape. God says, no, that's, that's bad. Those are sour gifts. Those are poison berries. Well, number three, uh, and our poison berry number three, verse uh, 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. So this is the picture that Isaiah has given them. Imagine people walking down the street in Jerusalem, 
and they're carrying all the, the carts. Maybe, you know, you go to the seaside and maybe boys and girls have the, the wee trolley underneath them, behind them, and you're going for a little dander with a bucket and spade. Well, Jesus is saying, or the God is saying through his word that, you see that picture of a cart being wheeled behind? That is what people are doing with their sin. They would rather carry it with them than confess it. Because sin promises to make our life better, doesn't it? The love of money, uh, 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 it all promises to make our life better, but it doesn't. Sin, we carry it behind us, and it's a drag. It slows us down. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He takes our sin. He takes our burden. This is deliberate sin that they're talking about. That people are just carrying it behind them. I think it was at last week in chapter 3 we thought about them parading their sin about. This is a wee bit similar. They're just carrying it. They love their sin so much that they would have, happily have their nose, you know, really slow to the ground, struggling with this weight of sin behind them than to just simply confess it. They'd rather carry it than confess it. Let us not be people like that. The weight of sin is so, so heavy. Let's give it to Jesus. He takes it for us. Let's not carry it, but confess it to him. Because if we're not confessing it, we're just dragging it along behind us. It will slow us down. That is why the writer of Hebrews says, that to let down every weight are the things that entangle us in the, as we run the race. Sin slows us down. Deliberate sin slows us down. It is heavy. Cast it on Jesus. Woe number one, two, three, four. Verse 20, and I called it spin. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Spin. A sinful heart will call what is evil good and good is evil. People's ethics are totally all wrong. They're overturning standards of ethical purity, claiming they knew what is right and what was wrong, not God. Is that like today? I think so. Spin. Calling what is evil good, and what is good evil. A commentator says this, Propaganda takes up concepts that were once honorable and disguises them in the glorification of the perverse. So what is taken is evil is taken. It's wrapped up in a lovely parcel, and it's to the glorification of evil, isn't it? Spin. And well, they, as they twist the words, not to reveal truth, but to conceal it. And we can think of really big things in our world today, but what about us as Christians? That's why when we prayed to start our adoration and confession, so about when we twist words, do we spin our sin, do we excuse ourselves, maybe as a, a little hiccup, or, but we're actually just spinning it. We're twisting the truth in our own minds to set us up, ourselves up like a hero or not as bad. We distort things to make the evil not seem so evil, to make it look good. You know, do we enjoy the right things? Do we enjoy shows full of sex and love, shows full of darkness and murder? Can I ask you, are you twisting evil to good and good is evil? I think you are. See, instead of praising what Paul and Philippians would call anything honorable, uh, pure and just, commendable and excellent, that is God's law. 
and it calls evil just as it is. But when we, men and women, become so darkened, we twist it. We twist it because we live in societies. We live in a society today that twists it so often and so regular. It's crazy. They spin it so much that we're dizzy. Get off the magic roundabout. Come to God's word. What they do is they make the salvation of God to be boring and dull and no fun at all. But actually it is true. It is good. And the people who do this sin, I think, are, well, in verse 21, know-it-alls. That's the next one. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. This is utterly foolish, isn't it? Because here, and we know ourselves, quite often we think ourselves to be right. And here in Proverbs, isn't it, we're told that the acknowledging God is the beginning of wisdom. But here are the people, and they're saying, we've got all the answers. We know what we're doing. Your Bible, we don't need it. We know exactly what is right from wrong. And we decide that, well, maybe from the bottom line of something, I don't know. We decide that. We set the agenda. Not your God. We know it all. God says, actually, that's poisonous to you. You know nothing. They are foolish. I think it's the final one now, verse 22, the last woe. What's the God's word say? Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and, and champion and mixing drinks. And here's the, here it comes. Who equip the guilty for a bribe. It is corruption. Corruption is a poison berry. Corruption is what gets people's annoyance up to, isn't it, at times? These are cheaters who accept a bribe and call it justice. And don't we see that in our, our, in our world constantly? People who are taking backhanders in Parliament, or maybe holidays, if we can say that, to go away, are they not corrupt? And we need to be careful that's not the case in the church, that we are corrupting ourselves. To accept a bribe, maybe not a bribe, but to accept a compliment and then repay that compliment with, you know, praise and someone that does not deserve it. We need to be very careful about all this. This corruption can happen in many different ways. And in our world today, I'm not sure if you've listened yet to Nolan Investigates, so it hasn't been advertised funny, but Nolan has about 10 episodes of, of a podcast and it really investigates Stonewall's links. So Stonewall is the LGBT uh, uh, group, lobbying group. And while he investigates, they're pushing, they're lobbying with the BBC and the government, and it really is quite something else. They are pushing their agenda, and the government and BBC are lapping it up. It's corruption, isn't it? There's a catalogue here of errors and woes and sour grapes and poison berries. And we need to watch ourselves, that we aren't ambitious, that we aren't entertainment drunk, that we're just not carting our sin about, loving every moment of it, that we're not spinning it, we're not know-it-alls, or that we're corrupt. We must be careful. But what does God say about all this? What is the hope for it even in this? Well, in the midst of all this, look at verse 16. With all the, the, the craziness of this world, all the sin and corruption of this world, what does God say? The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Through it all, through all the corruption of our age, though people call good evil and evil good, when it's all over, 
Whenever Jerusalem is destroyed and they all come back again, all the people would say, God is just and God is holy. Then finally tonight, oh no, it's not finally, it's a lie. Thirdly then, the root of the problem, the root of the problem. So in chapter 3 and verse 8, last week we had the same point. The root of the problem was that they were defying God's glorious presence, that they were utterly ignoring God. And well, this week is not too different at all, is it? In verse 24, God says, Therefore, as the tongues of fire lick up the straw, and then towards the end, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. They are disobedient. They have utter disobedience, and we've seen that in those six examples of those poison berries. They rejected the law of God. God delighted in his people. He delights in his church. But here for Israel, God did not delight in them. Because what we're going to see in those last five verses of chapter 5 is that the problem is going to be removed. Here is such a graphic picture of what is to come. The problem is going to be removed. The problem of all the sin, the problem of all those the, the things that have been going wrong in Israel are all going to be removed. How and why? The people are going to be removed. The people are going to be gone. Look what God's Word says. He says, His hand is raised and strikes them to the ground. Bodies like rubbish in the streets. It's graphic, isn't it? That's what God's going to do to Jerusalem. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to hold a remnant of people to start again. And here, God lifts a banner of distant nations in verse 26. So not only is God going, how is God going to do it? He's going to lift up a banner for distant nations. In the next verses, we see formidable military might, don't we? They come swiftly and speedily. In verse 27, they are ready. In verse 28, the equipment they have is utterly immense. In verse 29, they roar. They have aggression like nothing else. In verse 30, the people are going to be utterly overwhelmed without hope. Who is it? It's Assyria God's talking about, this formidable military might. The judgment is oh so clear. Israel is shown here, isn't it, to be an unholy people. And well, the church should not be an unholy people. Christian holiness ought to be visible in our lives and our hearts. That is clearly lacking in Jerusalem. And God shook the people. Is this what's happening to us? For those outside of Jesus, there is no hope. And we need to make sure that we continue to abide in Christ. Because finally, Jesus uses those pictures from Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, and John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the one that you must abide in. Yes, you are a sinner, but come to me. I will deal with it. Abide in me. John, or in John 15, Jesus is declaring himself to be that true vine, the one that is taking the place of Israel, the one Israel who is supposed to be fruitful, yet we're producing these poison berries. They have failed, but here is Jesus. A vine that will flourish. A vine that will produce not sour grapes, but sweet grapes. And if we're connected to him, we will not produce poison berries. But we will produce much, much, much fruit. 
Jesus is the, the true vine. We need to be trusting in him. We must be connected to him. We need to abide in Jesus. In that passage is the most remarkable thing. Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Isn't that incredible? Us sinners. Honestly, you should be like this vineyard, only destroyed. Jesus says, come to me and I will be in you. What an incredible thing for believers tonight. That we know the vine will be fruitful. That we know that our destination, if you like, is secure because our place of residence, our life is in Jesus. We have come to this life giver. And the life giver works through his spirit in us that we would be fruitful. Israel was also unresponsive to God's grace. And we have grace upon grace upon grace in our lives. Let us not resist the Spirit's prompting in our hearts. Let us be a holy people. Let us be people who take sin seriously because it's a poison berry. Snow White takes a bit of the poison apple, doesn't say. She doesn't die, but with sin we will. With sin we will die and we will rot unless we have come to the true vine in Jesus. Let me pray before we sing to God's praise.